Remain standing, please, and as I read from the Word of God, Peterson's translation of the message, Paul's letter, a portion of Paul's letter, to the pastor of the church, a man by the name of Titus, third chapter of Titus. Wonderful word to remind us, as Paul says to Titus, remind the people to respect the government and be law-abiding, always ready to lend a helping hand. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath, and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives and there's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. Amen. Let's join hands and hearts together as we pray. Dear Lord, we do remind ourselves of your love and grace, and that it is by your love and by your grace that we are washed inside and out. We have nothing to do with it except to accept it as a gift of your love. And we come to thank you for that today. Remind us, Father, that it was not by any good things that we have done, any religious things that we have done, but by your grace and your love that we are saved. Save us from the sin of pride, judgmentalism, and bitterness. Father, we think of the bitterness and the hatred that has been expressed in our nation the last few days. The tragic airplane explosion the events at the Olympics, symptomatic of the violence in the human heart. So, God, we pray for all of the victims, their families, their friends. We pray for a world, Lord, that grapples with the problem of peace. And may your spirit use these events in such a way that your people throughout the world will realize that we do have the message that can bring peace to the human heart and peace to homes and ultimate peace to the whole world, your message of love and grace and peace through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is the weekend of the Olympics, as you know, and you have probably seen part of it, a lot of it, at least you've heard about it. And I want to speak this morning on a subject suggested by the Olympics. A lot of the track and field events were taking place yesterday and again today, this afternoon, marathons this morning. I want to talk about the man who ran the wrong way. The man in the Bible who ran the wrong way. You probably already know who I'm going to talk about. His name is Jonah. There is a book in the Old Testament, a very short one, just a page and a half in my Bible, that bears his name. Now, he didn't write it. It was written about him. 
It is probably the most misunderstood book in all the Bible. It is looked upon as a kind of joke, as a big fish story. A Jews burn type account. But it's not real. And all some people know about Jonah is Jonah and the whale. Well, now I know the Bible says it was a great fish or a big fish, but a whale equals a big fish, and big fish equals a whale. So don't get hung up on, uh, on definitions. It was a big fish. But that's all some people know about uh, the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah. Misunderstood book. But listen to me, and I hope you'll understand and see this when we conclude this message in a few moments. It is, by the evaluation of some commentators, and I agree with them, the most spiritual book in the Old Testament. The most spiritual book in the Old Testament is the book of Jonah. The one book in the Old Testament that most reflects and reveals the spirit of the New Testament is Jonah. And I pray we will see that with more clarity as we move through this story. The first part of this message is about Jonah, Nineveh, and the whale. Look at Jonah. Jonah was a servant of God. He was a preacher. He was a prophet. He was a deeply devoted man. He was a very patriotic man. For in his mind, God and his nation were one. God and country was one word to Jonah. And he believed that any country that was an enemy of Israel was therefore automatically an enemy of God and that therefore we're to hate them. Because we feel since we hate them and we know God, then he must, and so we're doing his will to hate them. And if we have the opportunity, to destroy them. So you need to keep in mind that Jonah was a man who loved God dearly, but he bordered on idolatry by equating country with God. The Jews had a serious problem. They took a blessing, looked upon it as a privilege, and then began to feel of it a feel of it as a sole possession rather than a responsibility to carry it to the whole world. And so Jonah had come to that place in his life. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the first verse of the first chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go. Here's God talking to his preacher. Here's God talking to his prophet. God talking to his devoted servant. Go to Nineveh that great city, and preached to them, for I have seen their wickedness. And immediately, Jonah revolted. He hated, he detested, all the Israelites did. The Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital of hated and feared Assyria, the most powerful military force on the earth at that time. They were cruel and vicious people. They crucified thousands of people. Crucifixion was nothing new with Jesus. Many of their enemies, when they were captured, they had a horrible, torturous procedure. They would flail the skin from living bodies so as not to kill the person and then put them on a pole and place them around the city for people to see. Brutal, vicious, detestable people. 
And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. It was 60 miles in circumference. That's big. To give you an idea, when Walter McAllister was mayor of San Antonio and they completed Loop 410 all the way around the city of San Antonio, 55 miles around Loop 410, all the way around the city of San Antonio. Nineveh was bigger than San Antonio, than that part of San Antonio enclosed within 410. 60 miles in circumference. And God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Well, he would expect his servant to get up and go do what he told him to do. Because that's what Jonah had promised God he would do. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. Okay, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, God is making a terrible mistake. And I have got to protect God's reputation. He has lost it on this one. So Jonah rose up to go to Nineveh. No. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God wanted him to go east, and he went west. He left. He went down to Joppa, which is today's Tel Aviv. He went down to Joppa. He caught a boat going to Tarshish, which was in what would today be Spain, the furthest spot on the then-known earth, all the way across the Mediterranean. He was going to get as far away from God and from God's people as he could because he was going to keep God from making a mistake about those Ninevites. So he got on board that ship, and he started sailing out into the sea. Now, it's interesting to note when you read this first chapter that uh, in some of the translations it says, And Jonah went down to Joppa. And when he got down to Joppa, he went down into a ship. Those two little words, went down. They are very descriptive. They are descriptive of what will happen to the life of any person who claims to be an obedient follower of the Lord but refuses to do his will, rebels against it consistently, persistently, habitually, says, I'll not do what you want me to do. I'll not be what you want me to be. I'll not live as you want me to live. You can count on the fact that when you and I begin to live in, in disobedience to God, the trajectory of our life is always going to be downward. And he went down to Joppa, down into the ship. He wasn't through going down. Well, the ship went out to sea, and they got caught in a terrible storm. And these pagan sailors didn't know which one of the gods was angry with them. So they were running through their whole catalog of gods, for they had about 50. And they were trying to pacify whichever one had sent the storm. And Jonah finally, if you read it, you'll see the progression here of how it happened. Jonah finally said, I'm it. I'm the problem. I'm the Jonah. Throw me overboard. Well, that's exactly what they did. They picked him up, and they threw him overboard. And the first verse of the second chapter says, no, excuse me, the last verse of the first chapter said, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Could you imagine that great big whale cruising along there beside that ship? He looked up and he saw he was going to have preacher for lunch. <laughs> oh, nothing in the world like baked prophets. And here he comes. 
One big gulp was gone. Now, some people have a problem with that. Look, my friend, if God wants to make fish big enough to swallow this whole building, he can do that. Nothing's impossible to God. I've had the opportunity, Martha and I have to see some whales, and at times, they're big. I mean, they're big. The ones I've seen are not some of the biggest, but some of those I've seen, if they were able to come through that back door back there and come through here at high speed with their mouth open, they'd clean out a couple of sections of this church just on the way through. So the problem of the size is not anything in the world difficult to understand. Jonah was down in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. The point I want to make is God is powerful enough to create a loving source of redemption to swallow up any problem you've got, however low you may feel, and bring you back to life. There is no rebellion. There is no indifference. There is no neglect. There is no sin, private or public, that may make you feel like you are as low as a whale's belly on the bottom of the ocean. God will reach down by His loving power and He will rescue you through the wonderful fisherman, the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. You never get too deep in problems, but that God can reach down, maybe a whale of a problem, God can reach down and rescue you. And he did that for Jonah. The first verse of the second chapter says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. It took him three days to pray. It wouldn't have taken me three days to pray if I'd looked around and I was in the belly of the fish. That just shows you what a stubborn preacher this man was. And he was so stubborn that he even made the whale sick of his stomach. It was, got him delivered in a little while. But from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Well, that's no big deal. I'd pray in 30 seconds. It wouldn't take me three days. You would have too in all likelihood. The miracle is not that Jonah prayed. The miracle is that God heard him and delivered him. Because you see, what God was interested in doing with Jonah was not to punish him, but to rescue him. Get him back on the right track. The purposes of God are always redemptive, not punitive. He's come to rescue us from ourselves, from our own rebellion, from our own hatreds, our own indifference, our own prejudices that drive us away from Him. He's come through circumstances and events by the love and grace of God to reach out and bring us back. And the Lord heard him from inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, Lord, I'm going to keep my promise. You can read it in the second chapter. He concludes with these words, What I have vowed I will make good to the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. What I have promised to do, I will do. And I tell you, that makes me probe my own mind and heart, makes me look back in my life, into my own spirit. Am I doing what God called me to do? 
Am I doing it as well as I know how? Am I doing it as faithfully as I can? I made a promise to God. Probably most of you in this room have made promises to God. Are we keeping them? I can't speak for you. But I can challenge you to do what I do with myself, to examine myself. Am I keeping the promises I've made to God about my time, about my priorities, about my principles, about my practice, about my money? Am I keeping the promises I made? I will keep the promise that I made. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Aren't you glad that the word of the Lord came to you again, not just once? Yeah, there may be somebody in this huge congregation this morning, and the crowd uh, nearly this big at the early service. I asked the question, didn't have a hand. There may be someone here today. I'd like to see it, if it's true. Is there anybody in this room that accepted Christ as your Savior? The first time you heard the gospel. Anybody? I cannot lift my hand. The Lord's word came to me a second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And his word keeps coming to me, and his word will keep coming to you. And that's what his Holy Spirit does. He keeps bringing his word to your heart and to mine to go on perpetually rescuing us from the temptations to rebellion and to neglect. The word of the Lord came the second time. So this time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a great important city. A visit required three days. On the first day Jonah started into the city proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. He was pre preaching that, proclaiming that. Had a tremendous revival. Everybody in the town repented, put on sackcloth and ashes. Even the king and the princes came down from their thrones. He said, do not let any man, the king decreed, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The whole city was saved. And he only got to preach in one-third of it. The whole city, Nineveh, vicious, hateful, brutal people, all converted. Well, you would have thought Jonah would have been singing at the top of his voice. Jonah got mad as hops. He was angry with God. He was put out with God. He said, we were supposed to kill these people. And here you are saving them. What are you doing? But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Angry at God. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? Didn't I tell you this? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. This is why I did this. 
Listen now, this is a key thing. And I have three salient points I want to make that are much more important than anything that's happened up till now. As important as these other events were relating to Jonah's call and his rebellion and his storm and his being re rescued by the fish, all of that. That's not the main message of this book. We're just now getting to it. We're just now getting to the meat of the coconut and what God has to say here. Listen to Jonah. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Listen to how he knew God. A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. I knew you were God like that. Now, oh Lord, just take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And God asked Jonah a question. He said, Jonah, have you any right to be angry? Come on. Now, here's what I want you to put on the table of your mind and chew on a little bit. Maybe later today or some other time, but think about it. An idea that's gotten inside my brain. One of the things I believe that this verse here and this act, act, attitude and action of Jonah reveals. It indicates to me that there is a tendency, a subtle, pernicious, potentially destructive tendency to rationalize disobedience and deliberate neglect, neglect of God and God-given commandments, and to excuse our behavior by declaring faith in God. I may have the right idea of God. Jonah did. And still endeavor to use this as an excuse for doing evil. Here in this incident, we have the seed of what's come to be known philosophically as the end justifies the means. Because I love God and I know I'm right and I know I'm right with God. It means I can employ any means I choose even if the means are in contradiction of God's nature and character. I can employ those because I'm doing it in the name of God. Therefore, you begin to understand the Crusaders and the Inquisition. And you begin to understand Calvin and his theocracy in Geneva. Why, you cannot find a man who knew more about the nature and character of God than John Calvin. The Institutes of the Christian Religion are classics. John Calvin knew theology. He knew God. And he set up a state there in Geneva. And if you happen to disagree with his theology, he killed you. Literally. A man by the name of Servetus had a different interpretation of the Lord's Supper. John, I mean, John Calvin had him burned at the stake. He had some of his own 
children, in-laws, murdered, killed, executed because of immoral acts. A woman pregnant out of wedlock, he killed both. He was a sincere man, a devoted man, a man who's given much to the cause of the Lord and the world. He had the right idea of God, but it somehow didn't get into his attitude. There's a word of caution here for me and for you and for us, for all of us. Potential warning. Not enough to just have the right idea of God. You must act like God. Have the attitude of God. We don't just know God theoretically. We know Him incarnationally. He's part of us. Point number two, most important, and why I say it's the most spiritual book in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament book most like the spirit of the New Testament, is because here in this little book, we are reminded of the universal, unconditional love of God for all mankind. We know that theoretically, don't we? We sang it growing up in Sunday school. A lot of us, red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. We know that. God's love is unconditional. God's love is universal. He doesn't love us more than them, whoever them are. We're not teacher's pets. God's love is universal and unconditional. And it is God's will that all men be saved not destroyed, not murdered in the name of God. All men might be saved by the love and the compassion and the grace of our Lord. And the second important corollary to that is, this is the final truth, and it is this, God has given every human being the capacity to love him back. God has created every one of us with the capacity to love him who first loved us. Would you exercise that love this morning? He's given that to you. Making a difference how far away you may be or have been. It may, makes no difference how deep in the waters of rebellion, you might have gone. His love will reach you. And you have the capacity, instinctively, inside. As Pascal said, that God-shaped blank inside of you that can be filled only by God. He put that vacuum there and nothing but God will fit. Nothing but God. So the Lord asked the final word, the last verse of the little account of Jonah's life. God said, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, 
Should I not be concerned about that great city? 120,000 babies, little children, who don't yet know their right hand from their left. Why are you angry, John? Isn't it right that I should care about that great city? Isn't it right that I should care about everybody in San Antonio, irrespective of who they are and what they've done or where they're coming from? God's love is universal. And he has placed within us the capacity to know him and to love him. I heard this story this week. 37-year-old Puerto Rican woman dying of AIDS. Unable to console her, her friends. She was just bereft of all hope. could not comfort her at all. They sent for the priest. The priest came and sat beside her bed. And she said, I'm lost. I'm lost. I've hurt everyone I have touched. I'm totally unworthy. I'm detestable in everybody's sight. I'm going to die, and I'm going to spend eternity in hell. There is no hope for me. No hope. The priest sat there silently for a moment and began to look around the room. And he saw over there on the dresser at the foot of the bed a photograph in a frame of a pretty girl. And he asked the woman, who is that young girl? And for the first time, she brightened up and she said, that's my daughter. That's the only good thing that's ever happened in my life. The only beautiful thing that's ever happened in my life. And the priest asked, do you love her? Oh, yes, she said. Oh, yes, I love her. Would you help her if she were in trouble? Of course. I'd do anything for her. Would you forgive her if she did wrong? Oh, certainly. I'd forgive her time and time and time again. And this wise priest turned to the woman and said, God has your picture on his dresser. It's not a group photograph. It's just you. He loves you. He forgives you. And he's here to help you. Just hear his word and do it. Trust him as Savior. Follow him into the life of a church that's endeavoring to proclaim this message here and beyond. To come in rededication, to come in private prayer if you choose, to kneel, return to your seat. Whatever God's Spirit prompts you to do, come.
He's got your picture on his dresser. Come to him.